Greetings, this is Ginger Donnell from Broken Boxes Podcast. Um, tuning in from Ithaca, New York. I'm on an epic road trip on the East Coast with my family. Um, I'm excited to share this next interview because it's with Jeremy Dennis. And Jeremy is a contemporary fine art photographer and tribal member of the Shinnecock Indian Nation in Southampton, New York. Um, in his work, Jeremy explores indigenous identity, culture, and assimilation. Dennis holds an MFA from Pennsylvania State University, State College, and a BA in studio art from Stony Brook University in New York. In his work, he explores indigenous identity, cultural assimilation, and the ancestral traditional practices of his community, the Shinnecock Indian Nation. Dennis's work is a means of examining his identity and the identity of his community, specifically the unique experience of living on a sovereign Indian reservation and the problems they face. He currently lives and works in Southampton, New York, on the Shinnecock Indian Reservation. I've had the privilege to work with Jeremy over the past couple years for the project Settlement, which I produced and in partnership and collaboration with Chinupahanska Luger, my life partner. And it was just really a joy to catch up with Jeremy. Even though I recorded our conversation via Zoom while I was still in New Mexico, I edited the conversation on the road over the past couple weeks and I'm producing it in a hotel room in Ithaca, New York. So I'm really excited to like be on the side of Turtle Island that Jeremy calls home, even though not exactly visiting him at Ma's house, which we'll talk about, but I'm really happy to be able to produce this and share it with you all here. And thank you so much to Jeremy and your community for all the work that you all are doing. I hope you enjoy it and thank you in advance for tuning in, for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining me on Broken Boxes, Jeremy. Although we haven't met in person, we have worked together for over a year now on the settlement project. And as the U.S. producer, um, I've been in constant contact with you along with the other artists of the project. And it's felt very much like we have kind of become a community in that space. And so I just wanted to say thank you for coming on the podcast to chat a bit more about your work and the way you exist in the world. Oh, hi, Ginger. Thanks so much for having me. And it was such an honor to participate in that project as well. So I'm just so happy and I hope it continues. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, and can you uh, just introduce yourself for us here and tell us a bit about where you come from and your practice. Oh, absolutely. Um, my name is Jeremy Dennis. I'm an artist and photographer from the Shinnecock Indian Nation in Southampton, New York. We're a pretty small community about two hours east of New York City. And um, in a lot of my visual art, I explore themes of uh, indigenous identity, Shinnecock identity, um, trying to put together and celebrate the past, present, and future of our community and nation. And um, there's just so much work to be done in terms of representing us accurately, telling our uh, actual story, and the story of those of us who are still here today. Just a simple message that um, people don't recognize still. Yeah, that's that's powerful. And that's heavy work too, I'm sure. Um, 
to have to carry that burden. <laughs> I, you know, I always joke with Snoopa, my partner, who you also know, and he's he's always reflecting how he sometimes feels exhausted that he has to like tell the entire history of America in order for people mm. to like see his work presently. <laughs> Do you feel that way sometimes? Uh, absolutely. I feel like before you can even show work or talk about it, you almost have to educate people on how to <laughs> just approach Indigenous people as uh, individuals or as people before you even talk about the work that they're creating, just because um, just in the first utterance or the first sentences or introduction, sometimes people have um, old-fashioned views or they use words that probably <laughs> shouldn't be said in the 21st century. And so um, I think he's right. You just have to be patient sometimes and kind of have the expectation. And um, when I put my work out there as an artist, I kind of expect that. And so in my work, I just always try to accompany everything with a artist statement, a wall text, some, something online. And that's been uh, really successful for me. And um, hopefully people don't, don't just take the image and try to interpret them on their own and <laughs> whatever mm. um, gaps that they want to fill just from like popular culture or something. Yeah. And I know you do kind of many forms of art, visual art, but you're best known in our larger community as a photographer and you identify as that obviously. And you also um, alter your photographs quite a bit to create surreal scenes of resilience and almost pain as well. Um, and how did you come to pick up a camera? Where was the beginning for you and photography? Um, well, for me, um, I always love to tell the story that um, I was in a very small private high school and I actually um, failed my very first photo, uh, formal photo course ever. It was a large format. I think it was um, eight by 10. And the teacher just had all of us learn the basics. We had to write essays about it. And I was just so overwhelmed at the thought of just like putting the cape over my head and just having to figure it out all on my own. <laughs> so um, I didn't even really get a chance to experiment when I was that young. And when I went on to um, academia and college and undergrad, um, I actually went first for computer science. I was really into coding and computer work and graphic design. But as I began my studies, I realized it was much more for um, sort of like banking software and how do you um, do enterprise software? And so I quickly transitioned to kind of my backup, which was uh, studio art. Another thing that I was doing in high school was um, working with my art teacher a lot. I was just kind of like probably spending way too much time in the art classroom. And sometimes I would just bring me my own art supplies <laughs> just to <laughs> keep up with uh, what was going on. And it wasn't until my um, senior year of college that I finally took darkroom I started with 35 millimeter. And um, to me, that was kind of like a shortcut in a way. I, I still feel like I do this a lot, no matter what I do, like the easiest path to get to the final uh, vision. Mm. And so um, when I was in class, I would just doodle all the time, my classmates, my teachers, and just uh, stuff from the imagination. And so when I finally took uh, film in 35 millimeter, it was just a shortcut right to the uh, final step that I wanted to represent or capture and so I really just fell in love with uh, photography as, as a medium at that point 
Mm, and then you had the skills of like kind of more graphic just through taking into consideration the other path that you were kind of dabbling in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always wish that I were um, a multi multidisciplinary artist more than just a photographer, but with the um, studio art skills of painting and printmaking and everything else that really helped inform um, some of my post-production work and how a lot of my work is uh, photoshopped or collaged together digitally. And I think you kind of need those skills of like real world analog techniques and observation skills to be able to blend together different um, elements and lights and colors and things like that into a single composition. So that was all really essential. And as a photographer, identity seems almost inescapable as a conceptual key to the work. And identity is very complicated especially when we come from diverse heritages and simultaneously are raised in a specific geographical culture that we are accountable to. So how do you step up to translating your identity and that of your nation in your work? Yeah, that's a um, big theme. And it's a big question of how do you really represent identity? And is it even possible as an individual? Mm. Um, I would say as a photographer, it's, it was really my um, passion and interest to photograph people. Um, portraiture is my favorite medium. And I think the practice of seeking conversation and seeking new friendships with close and distant relatives here at, at Shinnecock within the community has really allowed me to kind of um, <laughs> experiment and see if I truly can try to represent us as a community, as an individual just because you kind of need a community's voice. You need everyone to be represented. You can't just look to the other artists in the community and say, this is um, who Shinnecock is. Um, mm. You really need people who maybe don't have any art, art um, knowledge or art history knowledge, or maybe don't go to the museum very often, um, along with those who are just career artists um, to try to approach how you represent a whole entire nation within an art medium. Mm, that is so complex, you know, and in your practice, you're called out into the world a lot, like pre-COVID mostly. Um, but how do you stay grounded in your identity when others may try to put you in a box they construct, not knowing your story or who you are, and especially when you find yourself outside of your own homelands? Uh, well, it's um, sometimes great to leave the reservation and go to artist residencies or go away for school or just travel for different art commissions. I think you really need to have both if possible, or you can stay at home and be with family and be with people that you know and support you no matter what. And also the perspective of going out into the world and looking at like, what's the real world like? What does it look like compared to your community? And how can you bring good things back? And so whenever I show my work, outside of the community, I try to retain a lot of the way that I present it, the context. And um, sometimes people do want to put you in a box like, um, well, it's November, so we better uh, invite this native artist or we can't have too many native artists because that would be absurd. Like we only need one for this group show to feel inclusive. And so um, I think it's important to be outspoken and just kind of tell people the truth that <laughs> like mm -hmm. what they're doing might be innocent in their eyes, but really um, 
you probably have to keep pushing forward and be more truthful with what you're trying to do and see kind of like what it is that you're doing is kind of uh, more tokenism rather than um, trying to represent everyone who's in the community when you're mm -hmm. uh, curating an art show. And so uh, whenever I work with others, I love collaboration. It's just that delicate balance of like, how do we keep this positive and how do we keep the um, collaboration going versus well, what you're doing is uh, pretty much against <laughs> like the work I'm trying to do. Uh, <laughs> stay together after that <laughs> yeah definitely and do where do you show primarily do you show in the city i know shinnecock nation is on the east coast it's not too far from new york and i know that you have had a lot of exposure um in the course of your career through like new york times and other various publications so where where are you showing and how are you approaching those conversations of standing up against tokenization Oh, sure. Um, I do commissions occasionally. Sometimes I even do weddings. In the past year, I was actually invited by the New York Times uh, twice to document um, the crew of reservation dogs. Mm. And then uh, before that, Dr. Norby at the Smithsonian. And so I think this is really an amazing opportunity to be seen. I think when people see the caption, they go to your website and learn more about maybe your uh, individual story and your creative portfolios. And so when I think about New York City, like that's the ideal place to show as an artist in most people's eyes. Um, it's kind of <laughs> like a different route for me where <laughs> I'm doing more um, just kind of photo photojournalism and sometimes a little bit of creative portraiture, but I haven't really had that uh, success in ga galleries or museums, but um, I think it's just something you have to practice and keep uh, going until you make it. <laughs> yeah. And that's a choice for a lot of artists not to actually participate in the gallery scene, but it seems like you're open to it as long as it's done in a respectful way. Right. Yeah. You always have to be careful of um, what people's true motives are. I feel like with my work, especially since it's a lot of the times talking about um, colonization and themes that people really don't want to talk about or put on their wall. There's often times that um, situation where there's like this invisible donor or someone who might be on the board that wants you to include this artist, but they never really <laughs> like um, admit it or acknowledge it. And you're just kind of like put into the situation where you're highlighted for a minute and then they forget about you the next minute. And <laughs> yeah. It's just like a very strange uh, feeling sometimes. Mm, yeah. That's complicated to, when you can see it and you name it and you're like, Okay. <laughs> um, but also your content, just like working on settlement with you and uh, learning about your work and your practice and your photography, like there's one image um, settlement was uh, kind of like an intersection between the UK and indigenous artists on the indigenous artist terms. And one piece you had um, was like this white presenting male body, like with arrows shot through them <laughs> in this almost like reverse colonial narrative. I, it's just such a beautiful piece. And how do people react to your work? Like it's really jarring some of your, some of your, um, your curation of your photographs. Like what is it like to watch people who aren't indigenous, like view your work and like, what, what is that interaction like? Hmm. 
Well, um, the interesting thing about my work that I've observed is that like I'm always excited to um, think about it, gather reference material and um, execute it in actual photos. And it feels like like the work is out there. I show it to people and curators and collectors. And it's not until like three years later that people actually want to um, curate it in a show. Um, for my first body of work stories, it took five or six years to finally <laughs> actually have it in like a proper show or like a public display. And so wow. um, with the series that you mentioned, um, Nothing Happened Here, um, it's a series of uh, portraits where individuals have these arrows um, sticking out of their body, but their facial expression kind of ignores the fact that they're in this um, bodily pain or uncomfortable situation. And for me, it was kind of a um, metaphorical series or symbolic series about the um, shared trauma of colonization, the fact that we're um, thriving or trying to thrive on land that was um, largely stolen and um, the fact that we know that history happened. We might not know the specifics, but we um, are able to prosper generations after the fact. And there's really been no like land return, no um, reparations. And um, I think that people really want to do the right thing, but just don't know how. And so with this body of work, I tried to express that in a tangible form. Like you can't just go around living your life in this pain. You have to acknowledge it. You have to deal with it try to take these arrows out and um, how that's done. I think indigenous people keep telling people just to return the land, <laughs> let indigenous people live and kind of not return to their old ways, but maybe a blending of um, traditional values and um, moving forward. But yeah, that, that definitely is a conversation piece. And I think that the most amazing thing for me was the first major showing of that work, um, which was at the, Suffolk County Community College, which is about an hour away from me. And I thought it was amazing because um, well, America has still an ongoing issue with uh, gun, gun control. And um, sometimes those um, there's those issues of school shootings. And to me, I thought that the work doesn't really exp um, talk about that issue, but the fact that the work was shown in an academic setting, it's like this outright kind of violent work was uh, so powerful to me and I thought that it was amazing that all the student body came out to see it we had a little reception and talk and I think that was probably like <laughs> one of the peak receptions in my career because mm -hmm. I went there to the campus there was probably like 90 students just like four feet away from me in this big circle I'm really curious about all the, what this work was about and um, you would think that work that looks this way would get criticism or be like why, why are you doing this? Do you not like white people? But um, people were so receptive and I kind of feel like they knew <laughs> what it was about. And there's kind of this shared trauma that we still have to address. I love that the responsibility falls on everyone, right? Um, we can get so binary and like blame each other. But yeah, when, we, when we're all reflecting on the shared trauma, I do think that that's where real like introspection and healing happens. So thank you for breaking that down about that work, that body of work um, mm -hmm. for us here. And your artist statement, um, I just wanted to like break that down a little bit. There's a portion of it where you reflect that 
Um, though science has solved many questions about natural phenomena, questions of identity are more abstract and the answers more nuanced. And then you assert that your work is a means of examining your identity and the identity of your community, specifically your unique experience of living on a sovereign Indian reservation and the problems your community faces. And I just really appreciate this specificity. And can you speak about some of the problems that your community is facing, but also the wins in your community and maybe how you are participating in amplifying the nuances of your cultural identity? Oh, uh, absolutely. I can think of two immediate and recent wins for our community. Mm. Um, the first most recent one was the return of the um, sacred site Sugarloaf Hill, which is five minutes from our uh, current territory, the Shinnecock Indian Reservation. And uh, Sugarloaf Hill is a 3,000-year-old uh, group burial site for the Shinnecock community. In the 1990s, um, the hilltop was actually leveled uh, 20 feet, and the site was uh, completely uh, or nearly completely destroyed by residential development. And if you look at old maps as early as the um, maybe 1740s, this site was always marked. It was always known. Um, it was never developed until the late 20th century. And so um, after 30 years of us being so outraged at Southampton Town that they would kind of um, pursue profit over the sacredness and the rights of people, especially um, us, our, the good neighbors here at Shinnecock, <laughs> um, mm. they finally returned the site. Um, it did take a uh, contribution of $5.3 million and probably even more even though the uh, landscape itself is probably less than two acres. And so it is an uphill battle, but we finally, after years and years, had this victory. And for us, this is uh, monumental because Sugarloaf Hill is part of this uh, about 3,000 uh, square acre landscape called the Shinnecock Hills. And to me, well, I should say before that, um, the sugar, uh, the uh, Shinnecock Hills was actually stolen from Shinnecock in 1859 in an outright uh, theft. There was never any legitimate exchange. There was no payment for the hills. Um, there was a lease at one point that was just kind of absorbed. And I think many people just thought Shinnecock people disappeared. But after all this time, we had to make this uh, exchange of $5 million for land that was stolen from us originally. And so um, my personal hope is that this will just open up the gates for maybe returning the rest of the Sh Shinnecock Hills. Maybe um, if worse comes to worse, just buying each lot over time. And this is really important to us because we've been pushed so far back on our land that my grandmother says that the only thing that <laughs> stopped us from completely disappearing in this area was the fact that the reservation surrounded on three sides by water. And so that um, kind of bottleneck on the peninsula kind of stopped the, uh, the um, finality or the um, completion of the colonization of the area. But today, most people think of the Hamptons as just like mansions and a party place. And so the fact that we're here and you can probably see us in the um, off season surprises so many people. Um, the other major victory that I can think of is the uh, Shinnecock Monuments 
which started in May 2019. And that was actually part of my um, original and um, second version of my settlement project. Mm. Um, I thought I was going to go to Plymouth and actually make a mini version um, either outside or inside, which would have been amazing, but yeah. Um, <laughs> next the, time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, next time. <laughs> but um, I really love the Shinnecock monuments because I always jokingly say we're like entering Jurassic Park. It has those iconic gates as you enter the East End. And they're these, um, if you haven't seen them, they're these three story tall LCD screens with the Shinnecock seal on top. And you can probably see it from one or two miles away if you're driving down uh, 27 East, our major highway in the uh, East End of the Hamptons. And so in May 2019, when we began construction, the uh, New York State Governor uh, Cuomo, who's now gone, um, luckily, Mm -hmm. and the Department of Transportation really tried to battle and um, force us not to continue the construction, even though the land itself is like 100% on Aboriginal territory. And so we really, at the end of the day, have the final say as to what goes on on that land. And still, they use every option at their disposal to try to stop the construction. And so after more than a year, we finally got uh, the second monument on the northern side of the highway. And I just love seeing them. I feel like, um, at least for me, and I'm sure for many other Shinnecock people, um, every time you pass by them, it's a source of pride. It's a, um, it's kind of a monument to each of us and our continued presence. But um, I also kind of joke and be like, well, hopefully no one's like sneaking up to it or trying to mess with it and <laughs> spray painting it. <laughs> Luckily, nothing like that has happened yet. And the fact that they're like video screens, right? Um, the content can always change much as culture changes mm-hmm. and shifts and evolves. And that's like a really beautiful sentiment to like beyond we are still here. Like we're still like evolving culturally. (laughs) I just Mm, love that. Absolutely. And one project that I would love to dig in and talk about a bit is Ma's house. And um, it's an old family home on the Shinnecock Indian reservation in Southampton, New York, that you are currently restoring. As I have come to understand, you are doing this restoration project in the hopes that the space will become not only your future home and studio, but a community art space and an artist residency. And this work feels so important to your community. And I wanted to start to chat about Ma's house by asking, what got this all started for you? Mm. Well, I would say the very first thing that began Ma's house as an idea was actually COVID-19 and all the arts cancellations, all the social distancing, um, which even today is still important. Mm -hmm. But I was actually planning to be in uh, Portland, Oregon at the beginning of the project for a different artist residency. I had to return home. I was actually in Santa Fe (laughs) um, (laughs) at the kind of peak of COVID. So trying to say hello to all y'all. I know. (laughs) COVID shut everything this. down for us. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, well, as a, a segment, I was just trying to be at the um, site Santa Fe and see all the awesome indigenous art. And then everything got shut down, which stunk. And I uh, rushed home to New York. Um, so after uh, leaving Santa Fe in a big rush, I went back home. My calendar was wide open. 
And as a portrait photographer, you really can't take pictures of people without um, probably putting them at risk or you at risk or your family at risk. And so I was um, just thinking and just doing a lot of kind of um, bike riding around the reservation. And one day I came down to um, our old family home down the street. This is the home that my grandfather, uh, Peter Silva, made with his children um, back in the 1960s. And everything was uh, boarded up. It was all locked. No one has lived there for the past four years just due to plumbing being all um, leaky and rusty. And who knows if it was a uh, lead pipe. Um, the electricity, I think, was still working, but the uh, heating um, was completely shot. I think the um, last group of people living here, my uh, first cousins, they tried to heat the entire house with a small wood burning stove in the base. And so I think they probably just thought it was like the last straw and things probably weren't working out because as we started doing the renovation of the house back in May, 2020, you really couldn't live in the house and do that at the same time. I think it was just so worn down and there was just so much dust. And one crazy thing is that there's a family of raccoons living inside and inside the ceiling, the walls. And so um, you really had things that were just beyond <laughs> control. Um, wow. I, th I think the entire front of the house, which was the original part of the house, we pretty much replaced every single surface except, except for the studs. And so um, it was just a, such a huge endeavor. Early on, I started to go fund me to try to uh, raise the funds because as a, a young artist, usually <laughs> can't finance such a thing. And mm -hmm. to my uh, great surprise, we raised over um, 30 and then $40,000 pretty quickly. Said, yeah, I'm still so amazed and grateful for all the support. Um, the crazy thing is that in the Hamptons, as you would expect, um, with real estate being the number one industry, I think 38,000 of that <laughs> alone just went to redoing the heating and the plumbing. All that's up and running now. And it's so great to have uh, <laughs> working sinks and stuff, but it's just so expensive just to do like the basics of a home, uh, especially a home that's already standing and there's still some framework there to work with. And so, um, for the past three weeks, uh, I've actually been living here at Ma's house. We've had um, an artist in residence for a little bit shorter than that. Our first ever artist is Yan Yan Huang, who's a uh, painter. Um, she does drawing, she's installation work, and a little bit of digital and video work as well. And we've just been um, learning along the way how to do an artist residency, trying to make sure she has everything she needs to create new work. And we just had a really great time going to different art events as artists of color. And that was really the big kind of uniqueness of Ma's house, um, aside from it being on a uh, sovereign territory, the Shinnecock Indian nation. I think the other unique thing that we wanted to design the house around was art and serving uh, artists of color, just because um, not only did 2020 have uh, COVID, but that was also a big um, kind of beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement with George Floyd being murdered and uh, Breonna Taylor and uh, so many others that I feel like there's such a need for healing. There's such a need for coming together. And there's um, also at the same time, 
an underserved um, group of people. To me, first of all, being Black and Indigenous, um, which is also represented here at Shinnecock, that I feel like it was a um, great opportunity to create something new and try to meet that deadline of like, soon, you never know when it's going to happen, we'll be beyond COVID, and we'll be able to invite the public, we'll be able to celebrate this kind of pause in time, and um, maybe we'll be on the other side in a different way. Um, <laughs> even though today's um, August 25th, and it kind of feels like we're spiraling down again. Um, we have had a lot of uh, really brave people come through, um, support Ma's House and the residency program. And um, it's been really safe. I remember back in September 2020, even, we had a big group gathering. We had a group show in support of Ma's House. People wear masks. No one got um, sick. And I think that um, people who come just have that spirit of um, caring and just caring for others and being safe. I loved seeing the process of it from the film that um, Rizal Benali came out to document you on site at Ma's house. And it's a short film and you're probably about maybe less than halfway through. So just to hear that you actually are living like it's livable now and you actually have had an artist in residence is just incredible to hear because in spite of a pandemic and everything you have like really just shown resilience in committing to this project and having it become a community space a safe community space um so it's just really thrilling to hear on the other side because that was that was like what, like eight months ago or something that she came out? When was that? I think, I think that might have been maybe, um, yeah, almost a whole year, like wow. 11 months ago. That's amazing. So congratulations <laughs> on that. And what's your family's reception, like uh, beyond the community, like this is your family's house. So what's the reception of the people in your direct family community? Well, I always tell people I probably would have never done it without my um, dad's help. He and my mom uh, recently retired from their full-time jobs. And so I really got lucky with the timing and lucky that he was available and wanted to do it. I think early on when we were removing a lot of the drywall and stuff like that and doing heavy lifting, we were really <laughs> kind of like putting ourselves at risk at times. We probably didn't have proper PPE for all the dust and mold and other craziness and so it's definitely a family um, project and I think that the effort behind all the renovation work was just the fact that um, this was the house that my mom grew up in as a mm -hmm. child until college years um, after my parents got married they raised my sister and I until we were about um, 15 and I think there was just so many memories here at Ma's house that there was this incredible uh, excitement to try to save it and see it be used as um, once again, a big gathering space, which it's uh, solely becoming over time. That is so beautiful. I am really excited to someday come to Ma's house when, <laughs> <laughs> when it's our time. Um, but thank <laughs> you so much for sharing more about that. And how can people continue to support Ma's house? Like, do you still have the GoFundMe up or? 
Um, there's definitely a lot of work to be done. Um, we kind of rushed the artist residency bedroom. So that's pretty much in a pretty ideal spot. We got a lot of furniture donations. We're also um, focused on the front of the house, which is more public. It has the restroom and kitchen and everything. So that's in a pretty good spot. But we're trying to um, continue fundraising to try to work on the more messy studio part of the house, which is the uh, basement or maybe eventually a different detached part of the house. Mm. And so um, we did transition away from GoFundMe and just have monthly fundraiser efforts on the website itself. But people can also support by following us on social media and just recommending the residency program to um, their friends if they're artists of color. It could be um, visual artists, it could be um, choreographers, it could be musicians, um, anyone really creative that needs a retreat from their daily lives and can be inspired by Shinnecock and the local landscape. Beautiful. One thing that I'm interested in, and I think other people would be, is what is inspiring to you at this time? Like, what is getting you motivated to continue to create work? Mm. Uh, well, as an artist, I try to pursue projects that are kind of um, endless. Um, at the same time, my philosophy in life is that everything is finite. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's just like these two things that don't meet up just keep me inspired and when I when I think of uh, indigenous art and indigenous issues and work that still needs to be done I think about the work that artists play it's such an essential role I think here at Shinnecock I sometimes play a <laughs> kind of like an admin role or a directory role of um, connecting people and so um, every once in a while I get calls out of the blue of people wanting to um, donate or help Shinnecock and it's um, even though I kind of like I'm just a middleman to connect them with like our uh, trustees or leadership or different departments I feel like it's really inspiring and wonderful to just know that there's that spirit out there of people wanting to help with um, maybe nothing in return except for um, just wanting to help others and mm -hmm. so I feel that's just a, a beautiful thing that the world probably needs more of. And here in the Hamptons, I feel like people could do that way more and not even notice. I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And yeah, I, I'm excited to learn of all of the, the wins in your community. And I just am just sending the best energy that it continues to go forward. <laughs> 
Um, what is a piece of advice you could offer to artists who may be starting out in the field of photography or maybe in renovation or starting an artist residency? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, that is definitely a trend of um, more artist residency programs that are kind of grassroots. Um, There's also a lot of initiatives where there's a lot of uh, vacant housing or vacant studios that artists are um, pointing out and kind of telling local governments that, they need to actually um, utilize these spaces instead of trying to create new spaces um, unnecessarily. Mm. And so if you have a dream idea, you sometimes only need your energy and passion to um, make it happen. And I would say to other um, maybe potential indigenous artists who are listening, um, you do kind of have to be patient. You just have to keep working sometimes. I think the this thing that has worked out for me was just being as public as possible, trying to um, control your public persona, just trying to um, tell your story in the fullest and best way possible. And I think people really do have a lot of curiosity and do want to learn more, but you just have to really make yourself known sometimes. I think that has been one of my great successes, just um, whether that's on social media or just putting like a random postcard somewhere you think someone will pick it up. (laughs) There's a lot Mm -hmm. of different ways that you can um, engage with different people who you might never think have any connections to your work or share the same life experiences. But I think the more that you put yourself out there, the more you'll connect with uh, different people. And do you have any recommendations on how people outside of your direct community can be better accomplices to your people and maybe to indigenous people more generally, like what can people be doing better? Mm. Well, um, my passion project right now is Ma's house and we're a very small footprint, uh, footprint on a very small, um, reservation and territory. And I think that one of the, um, biggest assets just in life in general is just space to, um, exist. Mm -hmm. And I think for indigenous people, we have really been stripped of that. I think that sometimes people want to like do land acknowledgements or they want to pay us money or donate food and stuff like that. But really, I think it's the land that we need access to, um, to regain kind of um, just like, I don't know if ownership's the right word, but maybe um, stewardship back of the land. I think here on the East end of Long Island, New York, Um, There's just so much that could be put to our benefit, like additional housing. We could um, try to um, rejuvenate some of the local um, resources through indigenous stewardship. Um, I think that if we need economic development, we don't really have to just try to push everything on the same little sliver of land. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's just so much that could be done for indigenous people that um, it's just kind of being held back, <laughs> even though it's mm. the right thing to do, just to return the land. Mm. But, um, I know it's not something simple. I think here in the East End, people say it's like too disruptive, but I always say colonization was pretty disruptive, but <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to do that. <laughs> oh, that is a very good point. <laughs> um so what's next for you? Um, what do you dream to be next for you? Like if you um, had no constraints, 
like time and money or what have you, what would you want to create next? Hmm. Um, I think for me, I really want to try to share a lot of what I'm um, interested in. I have been gathering so much um, local history and um, cultural knowledge about Shinnecock that um, one of my dream projects is to try to create an app or some sort of like better version of my websites that can be more educational. And so I think there's a huge demand in uh, schools very recently to try to update their curriculum and trying to engage the youth at a very young age to try to learn more about native history and native people today. Mm -hmm. And so um, sometimes I see those like opportunities with Google and other software developers to create new apps and new ideas. But I think if I just had no time restraints, I'd try to (laughs) learn how to create apps and engage with a larger community. Um, I think that's kind of central to a lot of my work, just trying to take something small, like a small community and make it well known to the world. Hmm. And so can you share three pieces of literature or podcasts or other media that are inspiring you right now that um, we could share with our listeners here? Um, Anything tangible that people can have a look at to kind of Hmm. be inspired about where you're coming from or what's inspiring you? Oh, sure. I would think about um, why well, I, I sometimes listen to Native America calling. Um, mm. I just love hearing just like <laughs> a mix of those NPR style voices and just everyday opinion voices and just hearing what's going on in the world today, um, mm. in Native country today. And um, I always wish that I were able to call in live, but I always listen on the podcast version. So I <laughs> always miss out. Um, <laughs> I think in terms of literature, I always say that I'm going to read more James Baldwin. I feel Mm. like I read a page and then I need to take a break and figure out (laughs) what I'm going to do with that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. His, his, um, his text is so rich. There's so much in it. Yeah. Just changes your whole point of view. And I always uh, envy his way of speaking and how how he kind of just like (laughs) is presented with these, um, people who argue against him in such uh, powerful ways. And then he just shuts them down so easily (laughs) with uh, truth and knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. He's incredible. That's a great recommendation for some literature. We should all be reading more James Baldwin. (laughs) Maybe I'll say those two for now and then I'll just admit I need to read more in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, where can people learn about all the research that you've been doing since you haven't yet developed the app or other kind of um, software to experience it? All the all the thick research that you're doing might be a great point of inspiration to share with others. And where can people find out about what you're doing? Oh, sure. Uh, my main website is um, jeremynative.com. And one of my portfolios that focuses on our local uh, cultural landscape is called Honest Site. And um, so much of the work that I'm doing now is just inspired by this one project. And um, I could speak to that project for so long. It um, is basically a survey of our 10,000-year presence here on Long Island, New York, and um, how I've been trying to approach it as an introduction or initial kind of uh, engagement with the project 
is by having a website and digital map that people can maybe um, look through freely or look up their backyard if they live in the area and mm-hmm. just try to figure out some of their local indigenous history. And it is a project that I probably only scratched the surface of. There's so much work that can be done with that huge amount of history. But it started out back in 2016, thanks to a nonprofit called Running Strong for American Indian Youth, co-founded by uh, Billy Mills. And so I'm part of a larger community of uh, Indigenous creatives and other youth who are doing really incredible work for their communities. And so I think that without that support, um, the project probably would have never happened in the way it has. And so um, that would be the number one resource that I hope people access and start their own maybe creative projects or research projects out of. Mm, on this site is what it's called. Um, and it's it's uh, attached to your website or does it have its own website? Um, it is attached to my website. Just to be nerdy, I think that um, with domain names, you can see when someone purchased it. And so as soon as I started the project, someone bought it <laughs> that same year. Oh. So the site.com is uh, <laughs> stolen. Um, oh. And so you, you have to go to jeremynative.com slash site to access it. <laughs> okay, cool. But we can link it through your website, jeremydennis.com, right? Oh, uh, jeremynative.com. Jeremynative. Yeah, okay. that's a whole other URL that I'm okay. <laughs> patiently waiting for. <laughs> so, so they can access on this site all the work that you're doing around that. They can find Ma's house and everything at your website, which is... Yep, so my main website is www.germinative.com. All the different uh, projects and portfolios can be seen um, by clicking the, diff- the different images on the main website. Awesome. Cool. I know. I, you know, it's funny because I always think of you as Jeremy native, but I'm like, that's hmm. not his last name. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> I was yeah. stumbling. I was like, Jeremy Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. it's funny that your website is Jeremy native. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've been on computer since the early nineties and I should have bought my Jeremy Dennis.com. <laughs> you got some doppelgangers <laughs> out there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Jeremy, it's been such a joy to talk to you and just to be in conversation with you in this way and be able to share your work and all the layers and depth of like what you do for your community, for the art world and everything. So I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to be on the project here. And I look forward to continuing to like work with you through settlement and beyond. Like, we're in community now (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much ginger and hope to see you at ma's house soon want to spoil anything but maybe we'll have to do some group photos or something on the front steps that'd be a lot of fun yay (laughs) it seems to me that the artist struggle for his integrity is a kind of metaphor, must be considered as a metaphor for the struggle which is universal and daily of all human beings on the face of this terrifying globe to get to become human beings. It is not your fault, it is not my fault, 
that I write. I would never become before you in the position of a complainant for doing something that I must do. What we might get at this evening if we are lucky, if the mic doesn't fail, if my voice holds out, if you ask me questions, is what the importance of this effort is. It would seem to me that, however Aaron, this may sound, I want to suggest two propositions. The first one is that the poets, by which I mean all artists, are finally the only people who know the truth about us. Soldiers don't, statesmen don't, priests don't, union leaders don't, only the poets. That's my first proposition. The second proposition is what I really want to get at tonight. And it sounds mystical, I think, in a country like ours and at a time like this. But something awful is happening to a civilization when it ceases to produce poets. And what is even more crucial, when it ceases anywhere whatever to believe in the report that only poets can make. People, millions of people, whom you will never see, who don't know you, never will know you, people who may try to kill you in the morning, live in a darkness, which if you have that funny, terrible thing which every artist can recognize and no artist can define, you are responsible to those people to lighten that darkness and it does not matter what happens to you. You are being used in the way a crab is useful, the way sand certainly has some function. It is impersonal. This force which you didn't ask for and this destiny which you must accept is also your responsibility and if you survive it, if you don't cheat, if you don't lie, it is not only you know, your glory, your achievement. It is almost our only hope. Because only an artist can tell, and only artists have told, since we have heard of man, what it is like for anyone who gets this planet to survive it. What it is like to die, or to have somebody die. What it is like to fear death, what it is like to fear, what it is like to love, what it is like to be glad. Hymns don't do this. Churches really cannot do it. The trouble is that although the artist can do it, the price that he has to pay himself and that you, the audience, must also pay is the willingness to give up everything to realize that Although you spent 27 years acquiring this house, 
this furniture, this position. Although you spent 40 years raising this child, these children, nothing, none of it belongs to you. You can only have it, you can only have it by letting it go. You can only take if you are prepared to give. And giving is not an investment. It is not a day at the bargain counter. It is a total risk of everything, of you, of who you think you are, who you think you'd like to be, where you think you'd like to go, everything. <laughs>